0: and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Eric Overland. Eric works on multiple foresight projects in Norway and across Europe. He has a PhD in future studies from the Free University of Berlin. Eric is co-editor-in-chief for the European Journal for Futures Research and he is the current president of the World Futures Study Federation. Eric is a guest researcher at the Institute of Futures in the Free University at Berlin, Germany and a policy advisor to the Minister of of education and research in Norway, he has lectured at the University in Stavanger on foresight management, and he served as keynote speaker on conferences in Norway and abroad. In 2012, he was the founder and co-editor in chief of the European Journal of Futures Research. Welcome to FuturePod, Eric.
1: Thank you, Peter. It's I'm um, happy to be here.
0: Great, Eric. So. The first question we start all our guests, Eric, is their story. So, what is the Eric Overland story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community?
1: Yeah, that's um, a story that goes a few, a couple of decades back. I started off my professional academic career uh, in studying philosophy and studying social anthropology and sociology, and I had uh, my first PhD in uh, social sciences. At that time, I wasn't familiar with uh, the future tradition at all. But I remember I wrote part thesis on the sociological imagination by Zebrat Mills, uh, which somehow uh, got my attention. And and it was very, very interesting how he also methodologically seen, tried to avoid the conventional empirical approaches within more hardcore social sciences. Yep. So in many ways that started off my interest, but I, I, I wasn't aware of anything uh, within the foresight and future studies community at that time. But that was somehow kind of a baseline, the first uh, impression that this is about the future Orientation towards the future is somehow both a challenging one, but also a very stimulating one. Mm. So it goes back, uh, back, back there. When that is said, I also worked in different fields, uh, also as a scholar, but also as a consultant for many years. The way I really discovered, uh, also when I really discovered this field was that I was hired by the Norwegian government. And that was the end of... 1990s, and I, I think it was 97 or 98 or something, that told me, Eric, we, we are going to reform the long-term policy planning within the governmental system in Norway, because we normally they did so-called forecasts and prognosis. Most of the policy documents and policy strategies were based on Mainly forecast uh, and prediction, mm. trial to predict the future in one way or another. But they really wanted to develop some additional and um, some other approaches on that field. So, uh, so I, I, I got, uh, I became the managing director of a, a huge governmental project called Norway 2030, mm-hmm. and at that time, that was more more than thirty years uh, in the future and. That's the way I started out.
0: What did you do first when you actually got the job and you realized you had to actually say something intelligent about Norway in 30 years' time?
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> a very, very good question because at that time nobody, and also there was no big activities in that field in Norway at that time. so So we couldn't. Couldn't follow uh, a national uh, tradition in, in in these kind of approaches, but very early we discovered that that is a field that was very spread all around the world in many ways, and and I got uh, I got a very close connection to something called Cellule de Prospective, uh, the forest studies unit with the European Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, I connected upon was the international futures program, which is a small unit within the OECD system that uh, we're carrying out scenarios and doing foresight methodologies as a part of the policy building work. And I had a close connection to policy secretariat in Canada, by the way, in primary office in Finland, and and, and, and as a as a and manager of this project, I somehow was able to connect them on a lot of very interesting foresight programs all around the world mm. actually and, and that was uh, very very stimulating and at, at some point uh, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs they didn't understand anything about this context so so I had I was totally free in my uh, in how I, I carried out my project. <laughs> So I was. Invited. You were dangerous. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's very dangerous. because So, in many ways, I, I act as an informal Minister of Foreign Affairs for now, but within this context. So, I was invited to congresses in all around the world. I, I remember I was sitting uh, next to the Ministry of uh, Energy in Canada, and I was sitting as as i represented the nation norway (laughs) formally but i I, I was a manager of this project but they were so interested in how to create new ways of doing policy research and policy development so they found that my attendance in these things were so important so i got that role in many ways so that was very stimulating and very interesting
0: (laughs) yeah there is a saying as you know in in futures of you know the beginner's mind is a very very good starting place for doing futures thinking. But but you were a beginner, weren't you?
1: Yeah, at that time, in many ways, I I, I was a beginner. But I think my background in uh, particular in philosophy was very helpful in the sense that yeah I was used to approach texts and and also subject with an open mind uh, in a sense. Uh, and I was really also used to think very how do you say it, I I, I could follow arguments uh, and I can follow uh, re- reasoning uh, a lot. And also, I had also background from a work research institute in Oslo, in which, um, you know, one of the m- most prominent world expertise on action research. Uh, so, so we did a lot of dialogue conferences and mapping conferences and search conferences and things like that, and I saw that that could be Related to the future field in in a very creative way, and if if you look at Robert Junk and uh, the future work uh, the future seminars that uh, that he developed, it, I, I see some parallels immediately. yes, yes we are you know adopting a lot of and um, trying out different also practically workshop concepts uh, in which we addressed future issues.
0: So did you pivot into more traditional futures approaches or did you stay quite eclectic and uh, adapted other frameworks to the kind of futures research you were doing?
1: Yeah, you know, the point of departure here was that we should develop alternative ways of approaching the future than the more conventional socio-economic modeling tradition and the forecasts and prognosis. Did because in Norway and it still is by the way the Ministry of Finance and the the whole institutional framework of doing prognosis and, and quantitative data anal- analysis and based on on past developments it was so hmm. it has a hege- hegemony in many ways and and that was the point of departure yeah it was quite at that time a very difficult task. in in a sense that they didn't acknowledge our tradition. I remember, I I went to a panel debate with Director General of the Ministry of Finance, and he told me, well, I can't discuss the future with you. And I asked why, because we have the methods, because you are not familiar with all, because you need the machines, you need all the instruments, and so on and so forth, so that we got. So I can't really discuss the, the future with you. And then I then I said, oh, well, uh, the future is very open and uncertainties are that uh, broad and and big. So uh, I I think you in spite of what you are saying, you should involve in discussing future with me. And he did, but uh, you know, but still, the Ministry of Finance and this uh, somehow the prognosis and the forecast it's an institution, you know, is still strong. But but it's. It, they are challenged at time being, they are challenged, that, but that was more than 20 years ago mm. and and you see a, some more kind of a development here, but what I did was to, you know, connect on what they did in other countries and, uh, and that was very, both interesting and very stimulating.
0: At some point you then pivoted to actually do a PhD in future studies.
1: Yeah, that was a bit on the, on the later point because... Uh, uh, after a while, I, I, I was doing foresight project within the Research Council of Norway with Innovation Norway as a public agency for you know, industrial development and research allocation. And research policy issues and so on and so forth i i was uh, went to the ministry of uh, education and research which i also are affiliated to today but i always kept the relation to the international community in the field and sometimes i bring and i had a seminar with uh, sohail in ayatollah in norway last year in 2019 by uh, for example and so I bring in people from my international ne- network also to the Norwegian context. Mm. But in 2010, 2011, I, I went to Berlin for, for one and a half year. And at that time, I finished a PhD at the Institute for Tour on, on the subject. Uh, is it possible to do research on what hasn't happened yet?
0: <laughs> Good question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you should be very creative to argue in favor of that <laughs> so so i really had to go deeply into you know thinking uh, as reflecting on theory of science and methodological issues and so on and so forth and you know a combination of my my classical philosophical background with the transcendental philosophy is one thing and and, and the other thing was constructivism mm. Uh, in the sense that, you know, it's a post-positive approach from side of the, the methodological and scientific point of view. Within the Kant research, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, you say it's, it's something called semiotic Kant transformation, which is, uh, is kind of the post-positivistic turn, linguistic mm. turn within the history of sciences. Uh, and that was the point of the departure for me, too. And so I build it on that kind of constructivism and try to further develop that into a kind of reasoning of how to use that in approaching the future and, and how to legitimize also future thinking as a part of a research project. I, I don't say that you should either do future or you should do, do, do past and empirical science. You have to do both all yeah. the time. But but, but I think that's, that could place also legitimize very stringent and thorough and, and creative future-orientation as a part of a research project. And that was my argument.
0: There is a tension in, you use the term, and I use the term too, legitimize the field. And in some respects, I would argue legitimizing the field in the eyes of the conventional policy world or business world to some extent means to make the field more docile and more safe. While I can understand how we want to believe we're part of a legitimate field, maybe we are a field that actually defied being legitimated.
1: Yeah, you know, so, and somehow uh, we are living of that fight all the time in many ways because it's a part <laughs> of our identity. So so in the, in the sense that... If everything would have been acknowledged, that's okay. You're doing scenarios, a part of a research process that's perfect. Everybody does do that, but they don't, you know. So I guess it's also part of our identity that we are, we are struggling with these kind of things all the time. The question is, however, if we are uh, continue to struggle with that in 10, 20, 30, or 40 years' time, Uh, in the same way, I I believe not. Mm. Because I think they're going to to merge a lot and create new kind of professional categories and so on and so forth. And the future field tradition, uh, I think, is going to take a broader part of that. Uh, And I can say something later about what we are trying to do in the Federation, uh, according to promote and stimulate that kind of developments. by the way, with our accreditation project, and so on and so forth. But I think the openness of futures uh, are also the openness of research approaches. And if you, you, even a conventional hypothetical uh, approach is, is very future-oriented. Of course, it, is. it have to be. But, but the stringent empirical criteria of the outcome is, has to be added by the conservative conceptual conceptual results.
0: Yeah. It does help us, and I'm I'm somewhat tongue-in-cheek when I say it, but it does help us that as, as reality and the empirical world gets weirder and weirder and weirder, to some extent, the legitimacy of the positivist viewpoint is falling apart almost before our eyes in many, many ways. And so yeah. there is actually a space created for alternative ways of looking at reality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what is reality? My constructivism orients itself in along the line that uh, reality is something that you create. You know, you create the world in which to define as a reality outside yourself. Even the materiality, even the, the nature as a such, is a kind of a constructive act, result of a constructive act in your own mind. If you try to follow along that line, there are some. Categories within the more conventional discussion, not only within a theory theory of sciences, but also, for example, between uh, environmentalists and and non-environmentalists, and and so on and so forth, may have some what is some some consequences for how you conceive what is nature and what is human beings. What is uh, subject and object in, in, in the conventional uh, theory of science and, and, and epistemological thinking? So, I guess, well, I can give you an example because I just wrote a paper in which I argue for 50 years ago, the foresight future community established, and at that time, in the end of 70s, or the end of 60s and early 70s, also the world future statiferism was established, and it was established along a paradigm shift in how we uh, approach ourselves, how we approach the, the surroundings, uh, the world around us. And the concept of sustainability, the concept of ecology uh, and the, pos- and the post- uh, positivistic uh, to the science uh, approach and so on and so emerged as a very, very important uh, figures. And, and then I just asked the question that was 50 years ago. And if we as futurists today should address what is going to be discussed in the next 50 years, is that sustainability, is that uh, ecology in a sense, uh, or or is it something else? Mm. And then I I thought that the concept of nature is most probably one of the most important issues that we have to discuss, what is a natural phenomenon? Mm. Uh, Is it given to us uh, as a tree in the wood or is it a stone in the desert? Is that something given to us independent of our activity in our minds so that we conceive it as as a natural given thing or do we have a responsibility of creating that objectivity and? Do we constitute that nature as as a partly human contribution? And that, I think, is something that we have to reflect much, much more on. And and we see it in particular in the development within science fiction, for example, and and also the new kind of synergic technologies in which we see it's, it's more difficult to differentiate between what we normally conceive as not something natural given and what is artificial made. And my thesis is that the nature that originally appears to you as something given independently of your contribution is actually a construction of your mind in many ways. So, mm. so, so that's a modernist product, so to say, it's a historical product of the human mind. Uh, now we are getting Peter. I'm getting very philosophical, but <laughs> I, 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 but I think it, uh, you know. I, I think I think it's important, but uh, and that's what I'm struggling with all the time is to find ways to describe this kind of thinking uh, because I think it's. It's important not only for the future field, but also for how we conceive the surroundings and, and how we should act toward the nature, so to say.
0: Yep. Thanks, Eric. This next question is the one where I encourage the guest. To talk about a framework or a, a conceptual architecture that is central to how to how you do your work, how you do your policy work, and that kind of thing. You've possibly touched on it in the last question, but I encourage you to to both explain it as a framework, but also talk to the listeners as you as you use it. So, what do you want to talk to the listeners about?
1: Yeah, um, the first, I think, one point of departure considering my own framework is that, and, and that I think I share with most of the people within our community as a, as a futurist, is that we don't believe in conventional predictions and prognosis and, and forecasts uh, only. Well, of course, forecasts and this kind of methodologies is important to use. Sometimes, but but it it's very hyped. I mean, uh, it it, it promises much much more than it can deliver. So we have really have to, to to develop additional and, and alternative approaches, and that is the whole range of, of, of methodology within the, the foresight field and the future field. Um, and that makes you what real says, future, as future futurists when you are able to use these kind of methodologies. And that's uh, I think scenario methodology is uh, probably one of the most important. Uh, what we can say that is a gold standard of of, of futurists. But when that is said, I mean, it's a thousand ways of doing scenario building and scenario projects. So you really should uh, reflect very thoroughly how you do this and relate it to different contexts. And that's what I'm trying to do a lot is to use these kind of tools in policy development. And if you are familiar with the ministry, for example, and and, and the government work, I can't go to my minister and say, Oh, here you have five scenarios, so please choose one of them, you know. So, and, uh, you know, I, I can't do that. If you use scenarios, you have to create scenarios in a way that also contribute to a very interesting and maybe a bit more creative way of recommendation for policy mm. and recommendation for policy. Then you make a decision. Then you break with that openness that you have in a conventional foresight project because you are then closing down, you are taking a decision. And if we consider all these uncertainties that we are discussing in the foresight process, we have to make a decision anyway. And so, and then we argue in favor. I think that's the most wise decision that you can make. If we use these kind of approaches, in policy building we, we have to think the whole value chain here mm. because otherwise we are ridiculized or we, they don't think that we are only exotic contributors
0: when I work for the taxation office in australia i I did scenarios for their tax policy, and I was interested as to how you how you try to Work within that space where they have to settle a policy to some extent. They have to take away the uncertainty, and yet we have an openness and we have contingency and we have probability. That I am interested as to whether you manage, whether you introduce this by the notion of either adaptive policy, sort of almost uh, path dependent policy, that kind of thing. I mean, because it is a very tricky process to to talk about an open future with possible futures and ask a policymaker to nail it down and write the law.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's exactly the same that uh, what I experienced and, and probably the same that uh, as a managing director, uh, the chief executive officer is a transnational company, for example, is also, you know, facing, they have to take some decisions on market yeah. orientation or whatever. It is. So, but they also have to acknowledge a lot of uncertainties. And, uh, and I think... What I have been trying to do is to to get accept for the idea that if I'm going to recommend something for you, and I will, then it should be sort of discussed in advance. in 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 the sense that we should be aware of a lot of more uncertainties that could contribute to different outcomes here than you normally do within conventional forecasting activities. Yeah. And if you get that in, in the first place, that acknowledge, that that uh, accept, that that's the way how we could do it, it, it's easier. And then when that is said, you have to also construct the scenarios, for example, if, if you use scenarios in a way that it reflects and it gives meanings to the people who are going to make the decision in, in, in the last place. In the sense that you have to create scenarios that are relevant and uh, not necessarily in you are decreasing your amount of fantasy in it but and creativity in it, but it should address some topics that are very relevant for the decision-maker. Then they could, you know, before taking the last step, they can discuss this kind of uncertainty more explicit and then take the decision. I think if you achieve that, I think you have done something worthwhile. And, and then... The, the foresight uh, activities are both relevant for the decision-making and also a necessity in the sense that they open up things in, prior to the final decision.
0: So, Are you saying that one of the things you can do with scenarios is, is actually do, do what I think they call wind tunneling? You actually test the policy in multiple scenarios?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah you do. And, and you see, well, if you decide on that, we have figured out some possible outcomes, some possible consequences. It could lead to a very uh, that a lot of voices are, you know, raising against your decision uh, among those and those uh, actors in the society and so on and so forth. Or or we could say that this idea, I think, a lot of people would welcome very much, and, and, and so on. But, but you have to be clear about the uncertainties, and you have to just play around a bit on these uh, possible outcomes and be very clear about the uncertainty around it. And then the more you discuss it, and then, then the uncertainty also seems to uh, lower a bit because what in the first place emerged as, as, as a huge uncertainty may... Be, the uncertainty aspect of it may be reduced after a while because you are familiar with all possible options around it. So, um, so to discuss uncertainties could also help you feeling more comfortable yep. with making a decision in, 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 in the last place, and, and makes you as decision making more certain and more sure about what you are doing
0: that's almost a stoic uh marcus aurelius approach of of imagining the worst possible outcome and realizing it actually isn't that bad
1: yeah something like that and and but it's not necessarily uh, doing worst case scenarios or you know, i often do some scenarios in 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 the middle and and Differentiate uh, between half worse and half good scenarios yep. uh, in different ways, and I think I, I I think that's very also kind of success because um, you, if you only have the worst case and the best case, yep. it appears in the in in the end to be less realistic also. Yep, true. In fact, you can't say definitely, but of course, but, but I, I got some uh, good experiences with, with uh, avoiding only the extremes, so to say. I remember one time it was a trade union in the northern part of Norway, uh, and, they, and they asked some consultancies to create some scenarios for, from them because they wanted to see some options. Uh, and then they created three scenarios uh, in which the future of the trade union in that region. And uh, and then they sat down and, okay, let's go for the third one. <laughs> I like
0: because It's like Goldilocks. That's too hot. That's too cold. That's just right.
1: Yeah 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 you know well let's go for the third that's that's okay that's that's oh that's fantastic and then somehow has had to say okay please uh let us sit down a bit uh you know uh, and then you have to explain some you know uh methodological uh aspects around doing this kind of activity <laughs> so i think you need a very thorough uh conceptual framework and you, of course, you can read a lot around it, but you also have to think yourself all the time. That's my experience too, that you have to contextualize a lot if you do pol- at least policy development uh, through scenario foresight uh, methodologies. Uh, well, in probably all kind of contexts, you have to take account of the context you are in. because. In, in many ways, you are also creating narratives here, that uh, narratives are reflecting more concrete realities. A lot of people said the opposite ra- around, but I think narratives is more concrete about the realities than, than figure, figures are. Yep.
0: Thanks, Eric. Third question. This is now how you make sense of the emerging futures around you. so what are the again, from the way you see the world and for the way you what are the things you are seeing around you that are that are getting your attention, the things that if you like are exciting you or the things that are concerning you, but how do you sense make the emerging futures around you?
1: Yeah, uh, it depends on your scope. I mean you're going have personal futures, you're going to have uh, national future, regional, and, and world futures. I'm, as you may be, have uh, gotten an impression, I'm also very concerned about the global future <laughs> in many ways. In yeah. particular, uh, concerning uh, democratic uh, developments and um, how are we supposed to deal with each other. Uh, so I see, uh, you know, underlining incredible strong a transformation of uh, the whole political or the condition for political activities all over the globe at the time being. Uh, I'm a very, you know, with the help of uh, artificial intelligence and all that kind of new technologies, of course, but not only, but also, also about how we conceive our surroundings and how we conceive national borders and and so on and so forth. So I see see a lot of uh, things going on in that respect. So the outcome here could be a lot of different, so a lot of different things. I mean, uh, some of the Western countries, as you've seen with Trump in in the States, for example, also point to kind of a neo-fascist change in the orientations, and you see that the the reaction toward that could also be, the result could be the opposite of that. But when that is said, I think it's also what's even more important related to what I just said about uh, the conceptualization of what is natural and what is artificial. Mm. Because in our mind, as I mentioned earlier in this talk, is that we have some kind of idea about that the nature is something outside us that is given to us independently. And you know, do something about building a house, uh, cutting a tree, or we are modifying genome or whatever, we are manipulating the nature, so to say. I think that's a very, very difficult approach to be survived in the long run, because we have to rethink the whole relation between the human being and the nature and the surroundings in in, in a new way, in, in a way that the constructive part of your contribution to that surrounding is getting closer and closer and getting bigger and bigger. I mean if you do you know, you know doing stem cells, uh, surgery, the thing that we normally conceived as something organic, natural, independent, of, they are changing more and more and more and we are you know modifying it more and more and more and the, the, that pace it going faster and faster. And faster. So Uh, In that sense, I think we have to adopt a a very uh, constructivist approach to what is nature. And the consequences of that is that you have to rethink the term sustainability, for example. You have to rethink the term anthropocene and so on and so on. I just gave a talk uh, to a conference in China on that subject in which you have to Create new kind of labels. We need new kind of concepts, and I think a futurist is really the one who should be able to create these kind of new concepts. And that's the reason why I sometimes play around with a concept I called universal perspectivism, in the sense that um, the creation of external environment and the materiality as such as a result of my contribution, uh, which is also conceived as something independently. It's a creation, is an act, uh, result of my, my act as a human being, but it's also constituting a, a, a world around you that you have to do research on, that you have to put into engineering activities uh, and you know and so on so on, so forth. So you really need kind of a new kind of conceptual framework to describe these kind of processes, and also because I, I, I talked about the universal perspectives. Because if you see the discussion between the modernists and the postmodernists, the formalists and the postformalists, and industrialists and postformalists, and so on and so forth, you see a lot of those conceptual creations are a kind of a negation of what was, yep. you know, post-suffix post is a negation of what already was. So so I think we, we need to develop more positive conceptual framework to describe what's going on. And that's my little <laughs> effort in that sense is the term universal perspectivism. So perspectivism reflects this kind of so Nietzschean uh, perspectivism in the sense that we can't say, you know, the objectivity, truth in in the empirical sense of the word, because we are influenced about our perspective and how we conceive things, and so on and so forth. But to avoid a, a total relativism here, we have to, you know, keep up on our ambition to be universal, because we also need to be universal, and that's the reason why I think uh, the term universal perspective is something that could contribute, uh, you know. But I had to sit down and write much more about it, uh, Peter, because...
0: uh, (laughs) Clearly, when you look at the world, there is a tension where we see universal perspective starting to emerge in areas, for example, with climate, because because, of course, climate is universal. And then the tension of people in their response to a world that is becoming more universal... We see people moving back to more parochial, national, local yeah. attention. Yeah. Is it just a dialectical process or is it something else?
1: I think I'm trying to go beyond a dialectical process because I see it's a kind of a baseline between the position within a dialectical process. If I describe it, the universal dimension is referred to the concept of nature that I just talked about. Because we are, and and that's, you know, the relation between you and me as human being and the nature as something outside us that appears, and I underline, appears something independently of ourselves is a kind of universal relation that we have to keep on discussing and keep on also defending, in my opinions. And that's the baseline of different position. If, if you look at the uncertainty theorem of Heisenberg in, with the natural sciences, he said that in one point, nature is considered as being uh, waves, and on the other side, it's dependent on approaches, it's, it's, it's conceived to be uh, particles, based on particles. And then my answer to that is that both waves and particles are natural are ways of describing in nature outside of ourselves and that's the universality yeah and not if it's the wave or particle in itself i think if we follow uh, along that line i think we can see some yeah we can keep up the ambition of being think universally and at the same time reflect divergence and heterogeneity without losing ourselves and reducing ourselves only to nations, only to relativistic perspectives, and so on and so forth. I think there's something there.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Eric. Fourth question, the communication questions. How do you describe what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do?
1: Yeah, I might maybe have some tremendous skills in that sense because I met so many people uh, that are, what are you doing? A futurist what is that? Oh my goodness, are you kind of an uh, oracle or what? You know, so uh, <laughs> sometimes I, I just, turned the plate and said, what's your prediction? Do do, do you believe in what you're thinking about the tutor is going to actually happen, or are you uncertain? And then people said, okay, I'm a bit uncertain here. Okay, and what do you do with those uncertainties then? And then they started thinking, what, what, the uncertainties, okay, Uh, what should I do for them? I don't know. Yes, and then I can say, okay, there's a lot of ways to dealing with uncertainties. In, in a way that you also stimulate future content development and, and, and thinking about the future so and then you can go into the discussion maybe you need then to elaborate some scenarios of the uncertain different uncertain outcomes of what you're thinking and so on and so forth and and if you I think the stick word here word here is uncertainty and, and complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you start out with those two terms and uh, elaborate, I think it's it's possible to express relatively clearly what you are doing because you are using methodologies and approaches that could be scenarios that we could well, a warning analysis, There could be a lot of different kind of things, but they have names, they have labels, they have a description of a process and so on and so forth, and you can present it to to them uh if if they're interested.
0: What is your position on people who have, who have authority, or who people people who are in positions to make decisions when they appear to be arguing against uncertainty? In other words, well, I'm not uncertain; I am sure that I am right.
1: Yeah, I can tell you something from my surrounding as working in ministries and with uh, government and policymakers. My experience is that the main decision-maker, the uh, politicians, are much more honest about their uncertainty than, for example, people that are uh, educated within some sort of uh, forecasts, institutional settings, and uh, have a very strong methodological interest in arguing about their certainties could be trend analytics and whatever. In my opinion, I think the politicians are more honest about the uncertainty and that they're also welcoming contribution that gives some answers to their uncertainty in a sense, uh, not necessarily to give the recommendation as such, but also elaborate a bit on on the context around these possible consequences of decisions or whatever. So, So in my opinion, I think the skilled forecast institutionalist is probably the worst case here. Yeah. In the sense that, that they have an interest, also a professional interest, in arguing in favor of their right-in-the-end approach and uh, uh, philosophy.
0: I think Philip Tetlock's work um, where he talks about hedgehogs and foxes. Yeah. And he says that you you cannot change the mind of a hedgehog and you cannot tell a hedgehog that they're not certain.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's also very relevant to some uh, tradition within policy research and policy development or strategic thinking uh, in in general. So some are really school and educated within a tradition that don't, which we tell them not to accept uncertainty because that's, you know, blur their mission, so to say. And I think that's dangerous, yes. Yeah, so.
0: Yep. Thanks, Eric. Well, we're at the last question, and you are now, I can say, uh, newly elected, uh, unopposed, as the uh, president of our World Futures Studies Federation. Do you want to talk to the listeners about the federation?
1: Yeah, I'm very happy. First, I want to say that I'm very happy to be re-elected uh, because if I was re- elected in 2017, so I've been in this position the last four year already. Uh, I'm looking very much forward to cooperate with the new board because it's a, it's a big, a lot of very interesting. People, my opinion, very diverse, heterogenic backgrounds, and so on and so forth, and also from all of the region all over the world. So, uh, so I'm looking very much forward to that. When that is said, I think the federation, which is a relatively, in a global setting, a small network, but it's a very relatively high network of a highly qualified people within the futurist uh, area, and. I think this federation has a lot of potential in addition to what we are actually doing. So I have some ambitions with the federation uh, in in the future, uh, which could be, you know, we could broaden up, and could become even more members that we got and. But we should also partnering with other actors uh, in in a better way than we have done so far, and we should also increase our relevance uh, in in the sense that we could create all the members. I mean, there are so much skills there and so much interesting perspectives, and and we should be advocate federation in all what we are doing. Uh, in my opinion, also as a member. So, uh, so there's a lot of potential here. Uh, and when that is said, I think I should also mention what we are doing regarding accreditation of future study programs, for example. Mm. Because uh, that was a cooperation with Jay Garias, he was uh, chair of uh, APF, Association of Professional Futurists, and myself, we started all figuring out how we somehow need some criteria and indicators to say what is uh, how are we supposed to accredit in, in a constructive and good way educational schemes in the futurist field. Uh, and then we have done a lot of work and we're going to launch that uh, by the end of the month. Uh, and we are going to address uh, some pilots uh, universities to be a part of this uh, in, in the beginning phase. Uh, then we are creating some services towards... Um, both authorities in different countries, but also towards universities that have an interest in creating this kind of uh, educational schemes, which are a lot. I mean, it's, we are approached by several already, and, and there are some, a uh, lot of uh, courses and, and programs in that field already. I think that's the role of the Federation, could be to promote and stimulate this kind of infrastructural framing and infrastructural criteria for educational schemes in that field.
2: For people who are listening,
0: who are members of the Federation and how do people become members of the Federation?
1: Yeah, uh, we are a membership organisation. To become a member, you have to be recommended by uh, already members in a sense because mm-hmm. because we don't want to just you know open up everything. Everybody who th- think they are futurist in one way or another is to become a member. Because we really have some criteria that you have to fulfill to become a member, and I think that's very important. So you can say that is some of a the conservatism there, but it's also a very important criteria in the sense of uh, the quality of the field. Because I, I see that if you look at uh, the trend within. Um, Business administrative uh, settings. Everybody call themselves a futurist, and they were invited to a lot of conferences. And oh, I'm a trend analyst. I'm a trend researcher, you know, and so on and so forth. But they actually miss some basic concept and basic understanding about what this is uh, really about. And I think, and that's very very important criteria. So not everyone. Have the possibility to join the federation, but when that is said, it's it's many, many more than uh, already there are members that are qualified to be become a member, of course. So there's a lot of potential here, and then we have different membership categories in the sense that if you are unexperienced, you are also allowed to become associated members in the sense with the ambition of becoming a full member in a two-year time or so when you got more experienced. So so uh, so that's uh, so we have a different say, membership category system there. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Eric. It's been a lot of fun catching up. First time we've actually had a chance to have a chat. So uh, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the FuturePod community for taking some time out to, to have a chat.
1: So, Peter, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I think it was a pleasure talking to you.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.